0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELAC A25. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, Pretty to help you move into the weekend talking about all the news in the world of sports. We'll get to Ray Didinger in a few minutes, Jeff, and then Brock Stassi later. Let's start the show with uh, It was nice of the heat to make sure you could go to bed early last night. You know,
1: and by the way, your guy Haywood Highsmith had I think 18 points yesterday. Okay,
0: so I didn't text you during the game because I didn't want the like the the snarky, nasty like, "Oh, it's garbage time." He played yeah during the game during regular minutes. And wait, wait, snarky. Yes, sarcastic maybe. I don't know about snarky. Okay, sorry for the wrong adjective. Right. Okay, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean Haywood's one of the few people who showed last night. It looked like Miami had the ten-day layoff, and Denver was the the team that was you know clicking on all cylinders.
1: So, I, I, at some point, uh, are people going to realize how great a basketball player Nikola Jokic is? The like sh- all, especially here, we we have for now three years. Been complaining that Joel Embiid should be some people, not me, complaining that he should be MVP. Embiid should be. When you watch Jokic play basketball, have you seen in the last ten years a more skilled basketball player? I'm not saying the most athletic guy. I'm not saying the greatest basketball. I'm saying skilled in everything that he did, every facet of the game except defense.
0: I think he actually gets that respect outside the city. And I I think that a lot of people look at Jokic as the player he is in fifteen. Like Embiid had a fantastic regular season in fifteen playoff games. Jokic is averaging just under thirty points, thirteen rebounds, and ten assists. He's averaging a triple double. He had another one last night. I mean, the the skill. And, and by the way, if you if you watch like the first quarter, it took a long time before he took a shot. He had touched the ball five times in the first half he did or he shot the ball five times in the first shot the ball shot the
1: ball his his vision on the court the way that he runs the offense like a point guard when is the last time you saw a seven foot guy take the ball off the court as much as he does and he sees everything he i heard i don't remember who it was i wish i could give him credit saying that he he sees the, the 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 entire court like no other and he makes the right passes like no other. Yeah, he'll have a turnover here or there. But if you watch him from the top of the key, he just seems to make the right decision and he makes it in a split second.
0: I think that outside the city, like I said, he gets that respect. But I don't think, you know, know, I pay attention to the ratings from a ratings perspective. I don't think this is an appealing finals for people. And I don't think that the way that the game played out last night will do anything to help that. You know, Miami was down 17 points at the end of the first half. I mean... You know,
1: well, that doesn't help the situation. I don't I don't know if you're looking at the ratings at the beginning of the game and then towards the end of the game. I think I'm sure that a lot of people turned it off once they saw what was going on because as much as the storyline has been the heat and how they got here and you know, are they going to have this miraculous run that's going to end, end in a championship, I don't think it is. I think reality hit yesterday. I'm not saying the heat are going to get swept, but as you watch that game, How exactly are the Heat going to deal with Jokic? How are they going to defend Murray? How are they going to defend everybody on that team? Aaron Gordon was 7 for 10 last night. Michael Porter Jr. was 5 for 16, but still seemed to contribute. Everybody on the team. And by the way, they had a rotation of
0: only eight players. Well, I think that last night was, as our guest coming up, Mr. Dinger would have said on TV years ago, it was a reality check. You know, and I don't think that that some of the Jimmy had a great line after the end of the Celtics series saying, you know, what do you think of the role players you have with them? Because I call them teammates. But in reality, they're they're undrafted bench players, many of them filling in roles there. They did not have a good night last night. You would think that they would play a little bit better given how they have played in the playoffs. But who knows what this team will be?
1: Yeah, but you know what the heat and by the way, the heat used, I think, 11 players, 11 or 12. So, yes, and there was some decent garbage time as part of it. But you're talking about eight, an eight-player rotation that Denver is using and using it well. And and, and anyone who's going to sit there and say, well, the Heat have all these undrafted free agents. Jokic was a second-round pick.
0: Yeah, look. It... Let that sink so, in. Okay, so is Jokic, there, so...
1: Jokic, 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 now, because they don't have as many rounds in the NBA, obviously, as they do in the NFL— Jokic just the Tom Brady of, of the NBA.
0: So is this a 5 game series in your mind? What at I best so, at, at best. best. So you think there could be a sweep. Uh,
1: I I think somehow the, the Heat will pull out a game probably in Miami. Okay. But I think I think by the end of this weekend it's going to be it's going to be
0: 2-0. Well, that that could certainly happen. Uh some news well, What here. do you
1: think? I mean do you, do you think that the Heat have any answers for what the Nuggets
0: have? I don't think the Heat are going to be as bad as they were last night, but I think it's going to be really tough. I think I think Denver's a really tough matchup for Miami based on their size and and some of the guys they have out there. It's just they don't have the guys to match up against who Denver runs out on the court, whether it's the starting five or the three guys that are coming off the bench. It's just no, not a, a good match. Boston clearly would Boston would have clearly been a better matchup F- for yeah against Denver. Yeah. Absolutely uh but so, so
1: is is denver this generation in san antonio spurs like is is this the beginning of
0: of something great well it's a big denver? it's a big statement they have to win the first one it has the no potential. i'm not saying they're there yet but uh, i'm as saying in they, an underappreciated on that trajectory. as in an underappreciated talented squad that doesn't is that what you're talking about
1: i'm saying they're on that trajectory they have they have have this centerpiece the way that tim duncan was a centerpiece on that san antonio t- team they have Jokic, they have murray that fits into a role They, they just as a great shooter they have a great starting five going for them and then they have complementary pieces surrounding it that if they keep this core together and add to it over the course of time whether it be through the draft or getting free agents they're they're the kind of Small market kind of team that can continue to build on this and continue to be a team that for the next
0: five years can go on a run. They seem yes, like they're they being. They still have to win their first one. Yeah, they seem like they're being built the right way. Again, I mean, they have to win it, but yes, they do have the potential to be. It's just big. It's a big label to throw on a team that hasn't won anything yet. But I think, yeah, there's yeah. potential. All right, let's. All right. I, I don't know where to you, go you want to wanna
1: go you want to go to nick nurse and, and
0: and nick nurse saying he wants he wants harden definitely to be here i don't believe Do you me. buy it no not not at all and i don't think that harden's gonna be here with nick nurse and i'm okay with that i i, just, I,
1: I don't see how it works nick nurse by all accounts is the x's and o's guy the set plays guy
0: not the dribble dribble had- dribble stand at the top of the key guy
1: no, not forget that. Harden came out after the season and he said won't. he wants to go somewhere where he has, quote, basketball freedom, end quote. That doesn't that, appear. That to isn't either. a guy who likes X's and O's and set plays. And he's never like
0: that. Yes, that does not appear to appear to be the direction that the team went. Look, I think he was one of the best coaches out there. It, it's funny. I, I feel like I complain about coaches all the time. I probably do. Like if you listen back on this show, I think. And refs. uh, Yes. Well, look, I haven't gotten to the refs in the burner account yet. So (laughs) we may not get to that before we talk to Ray. Uh, But, you know, I think it's a good move for the Sixers. I'm very curious to see how this team plays with an actual X's and O's offense there. The thing in Toronto, he had a very short bench and it may be from the lack of talent, but I mean, Embiid wears down as the season goes, so he's going to go as Embiid goes from now. Is is Embiid healthy? Is Embiid out there? That's going to kind of dictate what this team does. Well, I'm really curious what positions they put people in and, and what players are even going to be here for that ride.
1: How much better or worse do you think the Sixers are if you make one single move? Well, it's, it's a combination move. Harden walks and you somehow get Fred Van, Van and don't have to give any, any significant pieces. I
0: just don't see Are the you... Sixers better or worse? Oh, dead silence on the wow.
1: air. Wow. I don't know. Just so you know, there's nothing wrong with our microphones right Co- now. Consistent. There is dead silence on your side, and I would argue that they are better. Okay. I would argue they're significantly better. Not because Van Vliet is a better player than Harden. He's a better teammate than Harden. He fits better in the offense that Nurse is going to run. And by the way, Nurse and, and Van Vliet seem to be
0: in love with each other. Yeah, they oh, Van Vliet spoke very highly of him uh, when after the Nick Nurse hiring. Uh, you know, we'll see. I don't know what players are going to be here. And if Harden's not here, they have some constraints on the, the finances in terms of who they can bring in at least next year. So we'll see how they get through that. But actually, Jeff, let's leave the basketball talk there. Let's get to our man as we are. Thrilled to get a few minutes with writer, author, playwright, TV man, radio man, NFL Hall of Famer, you name it. Ray Didinger. thank you so much for giving us some time on the show.
2: Happy to be with you guys.
0: You are uh, somebody who has seen so much through your time and we're going to get to Tommy and me, which is sort of the, the culmination of everything that you've you've done and seen for you. But you were a sports columnist for the Bulletin and you covered the Flyers first Stanley Cup, the Phillies first World Series title and the Eagles first Super Bowl ex- appearance. What was it like to to be somebody that helped tell that story to such a passionate fan base through the years?
2: Um. It, it felt like a privilege. It felt like a privilege. It really did. Uh, someone told me uh, about a year ago, you know, do you realize that you're the only journalist, sports writer, whomever, that covered all of those things? I mean, you're the only one that was there for all, for all of them. As you said, Flyers, two cups, the uh, the Phillies winning the World Series, first time ever in 1980. Don't forget the Sixers with Dr. J and Moses Malone winning the NBA championship. And then just a couple of years ago with the Eagles finally winning the Super Bowl, that I'm the only, I'm the only reporter that was at all of those things. and um, I hadn't really thought about that, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, and what makes it even better is I'm a Philadelphian. I was born and raised here. I grew up following all of those teams. Um, you know, I, I, I went to the games at Connie Mack stadium. I suffered through the Phillies collapse in 64. Uh, <laughs> I celebrated 1960 at Franklin Field when the Eagles won a championship. I mean, I lived all of that. Uh, And the fact that I've been able now as a working journalist to cover all of those uh, championship moments and the parades that followed uh, has been just tremendously gratifying and just a wonderful, wonderful memory that uh, I'll have forever.
1: You know, most journalists move around a lot you've had the, the pleasure of, of being in Philadelphia for most of your career and being a Philadelphian beforehand the as, as, as a Philadelphian, is it easier or harder to cover your teams?
2: Don't no, much oh, much easier much easier I think. Um, I mean you may get a different answer from different people but for me no it felt much easier. Uh, for one thing, because uh, I have I've been here my whole life, grew up here, I uh, was a huge fan from the time I was a little kid of all the teams. Um, I know the history, you know, I mean, there's, there's very little that happens if I'm covering an Eagles game or a Phillies game or something, there's very little that happens within the game where I have to pull out the record book and look up a stat. I mean, I have it all, <laughs> I have it all here, um, which it, it helps a lot. Uh, if somebody talks about something that happened in the history of the Phillies, I know it, I lived it. Uh, and um I also think that that we've had a lot of really great sports journalists and broadcasters that have come through this town in the last 50 years. Um, But a lot of them came from other places. I mean, Stan Hockman was from New York. Bill Lyon was from Illinois. Tom Cushman was from Indiana. You know, Bill Conlon was from New York. I mean, all of these guys are terrific journalists. Uh, Mark Wicker, Sandy Grady were from North Carolina. Terrific journalists, great writers. Um, but they came from other places. Um, So, for example, if you're recovering 1980, when the Phillies finally, finally won a World Series, you know, all those same guys were in the press box with me. Uh, And that night when the Phillies beat Kansas City to finally win the World Series, you know, all of those guys, you know, were trying to piece together what this meant to Philadelphia to to finally have that moment. And... I knew, you know, I mean, everything that the fans were feeling, I was feeling too. Uh, And uh, so I think that made the writing of it and the capturing of just the emotion of the city much easier for me to get my arms around because, you know, I lived it in a way that the other guys had not. So I I always felt that being a native Philadelphian and working here in sports media my whole life was a tremendous advantage.
0: You know, you you went from... E.E. at Franklin Field to the press box and and somebody said about you, you know what I like about you? You're a homeboy, but not a homer. Right. Talk about how being that homeboy at your grandfather's bar led to the bus trips to the football games, which led to your parents taking you to Hershey, which led to Tommy and me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's... um... That's the arc. I mean, you just you just laid it out there. You just walked my whole journey. <laughs> um, yeah, Southwest Philadelphia. Uh, that's where I was born. Um, grew up from the time I was eight, nine years old, hanging out at my grandfather's bar on Woodland Avenue, talking sports with the guys. You know, all the blue collar guys that came to the bar. Um, you know, while other kids were reading the Hardy Boys and or watching Soupy Sales, I was down at the bar sitting there drinking Cokes and talking about Robin Roberts and Norm Van Brocklin, and tremendous training (laughs) for my career. Didn't know it at the time, uh, but that was sort of my apprenticeship, I guess, um, in terms of learning about the sports. And the other part of it was, and this is very real, uh, was getting an understanding at a very early age that, especially in this town, Sports are not just games. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that unless you're really in that culture, look at, say, why do people get all excited about these games? Why do they pay so much attention about, you know, to the whether the Phillies win or lose? Why do they get all worked up about the Eagles on Sunday? You know, why are people on a Monday after an Eagles loss? You know, why are people depressed? Well, um, I think it's true in some towns, but it's certainly true in this town that, the working class people, the, the the guys that I grew up with, the guys that I knew, the bus drivers, the truck drivers, the auto mechanics, um, they defined themselves by their love of sports. They defined their they defined their daily lives by whether the teams they rooted for were winning or losing. It was that important to them. So I think when I got into the sports media business. I didn't look at the games as oh just games i mean i understood that these were things that were really important in people's lives um and whether your team won or lost was something that you carried around inside of you and i think that that's one of the things that kind of drew me to the business in the first place and it's one of the things that you know that i really came to appreciate that you know it's not just you know it's not just guys playing a kid's game um I mean, these teams and the fate of these teams, good or bad, has a real genuine impact on on life in this city. And I had got that awareness. Some people come to it later on in life, but because of where I lived and the people I grew up with, uh, I had that appreciation from a very early age.
1: Your understanding and witnessing of history, especially with the Eagles, did you feel any type of burden that you were you were carrying the history of the eagles and telling the story of the eagles and really being a historian for the eagles history
2: um a little bit uh especially when temple university press came to me and asked me to write the eagles encyclopedia um i mean if if ever there was a book that i was born to write that was probably (laughs) it uh but i I never i never really thought about doing it until they came to me with the proposal that they wanted to do an eagles they had done a Phillies encyclopedia um, uh, 10 years earlier, um, which was quite successful. And then they thought, well, you know, an Eagles book would certainly be at least as successful. So they, they went out to find somebody to write it for them. So they came to me, uh, and, you know, I knew that it was a big undertaking because there's a lot of history here, but I also knew that how can, how can I say no to that project? You know, I mean, the Eagles Encyclopedia is something I had basically lived in my whole life. So, um, I did it uh, and I, I just had a ball doing it. It was, it was a lot of work and I was, I fortunately, and it was actually too much work for me alone to take on. Uh, I asked if we could find a co-author and they found a very good one, a, a fellow named uh, Robert Lyons who uh, worked for Associated Press in a city and also was a Philadelphian. So Bob and I kind of shared the original Eagles Encyclopedia and it, w- it was a lot of work, um, but so much of it I had right here I mean, so much. You know, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't look things up. I did, just to be factually correct, dates, scores, and things like that. But the general pulse of the story, and really the heart of the story, uh, I knew. I mean, nobody had to explain it to me. I had lived it all, uh, the good and the bad. So writing Eagles Encyclopedia was um, it was really a lot of fun. And you know, we've now gone back and we've revised it uh, twice. We did Eagles Encyclopedia, the original. Then we did the new Eagles Encyclopedia, which came out 10 years later. And then you know, I kind of said to them, you know, I, I don't know that we need to change it at all unless the Eagles win the Super Bowl. If the Eagles win the Super Bowl, I think that's, I think it's, it's sort of incumbent upon us to do a third edition. And lo and behold, you know, Super Bowl 52 happened and uh, we came back with the Eagles, Philadelphia Eagles Encyclopedia Champions Edition. Uh, and we were actually prepared to do it again this year. If they had, if they had won, if they had beaten the Chiefs and won the Super Bowl, there would have been yet a fourth edition of the Eagles Encyclopedia. So we didn't get to do it this year, but hopefully we'll get to do it soon.
0: I would more than welcome a, <clears throat> a fourth edition. So, you know, your your life story basically now comes to life on the stage. Uh, people can see Tommy and me now at. Bucks County Playhouse. We'll have information later in the show and put it out on social of how they can get tickets. So you go to training camp with your parents, and you're there to try and get an autograph. Tell us right. about your relationship arc with Tommy, who you ended up telling the story about many, many years later, right before his induction into the Hall of Fame.
2: Right, right. Yeah, well, um, it, it does start with that. Uh, my family were um, I mean, they were just more than Eagles fans. I mean, they were they were super fans. And uh, um, the, to the point where my dad would get two weeks summer vacation, as all working men did back in the day. And our two weeks were always spent in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which was where the Eagles had their training camp then. And that was literally our, vac- our yearly vacation. We would take those two weeks and we would go to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, we would uh, get a, a room at the Coco Inn. Uh, and we would go to Eagles practice every day. We'd go, um uh, I've morning practice. would go get something to eat. would come back. would watch the afternoon practice next day. We'd repeat the process for the whole two weeks. And then after two weeks we'd go back to Philadelphia. And, but that was it. I mean, that was, you know, I mean, that's how much my family was into it. Our summer vacation was Eagles training camp every year. Um, and, um, so I was up close and personal with the team at that time. And, um, Again, this was the '50s, uh, so pro football was not as big as it is now, uh, and training camp was not the was not the big deal that it is today. I mean, back then, Eagles training camp hardly anybody went to practice, uh, so there was no need for security or fences or you know, uh, things to hold people back. There, you know, if you if you went to practice, you parked your car right on the edge of the field, you could stand there right with the players. I mean, it was it was that informal. And a little kid like me could stand at the locker room door and with an autograph book and get every autograph on the team. And, you know, Tommy McDonald was my favorite player as, as he was pretty much every kid's favorite player. And, uh, but because I was up at training camp every day, I could see him every day. And I waited at the locker room door for him every day. And it started off with an autograph, which he signed. And then he handed me his helmet and said, you know, okay, here's my home. You want to walk with me to the practice field? And we would do that every day for the full two weeks. And and we did that every summer for his whole seven years with the Eagles. And uh, over the course of that time, we just developed a friendship that uh, carried on uh, into later life and wound up with when I became a sports writer, me um, sort of leading the campaign to get him the thing that he always wanted and dreamed of. Which was a place in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and uh, it all it all happened. Uh, and uh, he got in the Hall of Fame in 1998. He asked me to be his presenter, uh, so we got to share that whole weekend in Canton, Ohio. And it was in the middle of that that I realized what a truly remarkable story this was, and what an amazing journey these two people had taken together over the course of 40 years. And that's when I said, you know, I have to tell this story. It's just too good not to tell and share. Um, and so that's that's what ultimately became Tommy and me. You
1: know, we're, we're, we're going to be lucky enough to see that story. But if you could go back, if Ray did of today, could go back to the kid that, that went to Hershey for two weeks every year and say, this is how your life was going to end up. That someday you were not only going to tell the story of the Eagles and get to report on the Eagles but that you were going to be in a, in the hall of fame room, sitting there helping decide who is going to be in the hall of fame. And then you would be there yourself. What would you say to that kid?
2: Um, could, in in real terms, couldn't imagine it happening, but wished it, hoped for it, thought about it. Um, You know, when I was up at Eagles training camp, I just became, um, I I just, I loved the sport. Uh, I loved having that kind of intimacy with the players and and kind of being able to see the game up close uh, and develop a friendship with some of the players, especially with Tommy. Um, I began thinking down the road about, you know, what I'd like to do in life and thinking, boy, I'd like to be involved in this somehow, some way. I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly how. I can't begin to tell you exactly what. But um, I thought, look, I, I knew I, I wasn't going to play in the NFL. <laughs> I, I knew, I knew that was highly unlikely. But I also was up there enough and around it enough that I saw the, the other people, you know, and I saw the newspaper guys who were covering the team for the newspaper, and I read their articles, and I saw the broadcasters, and I saw those guys, and I thought, you know. Yeah, maybe that. You know, maybe that's attainable. And so, you know, when I get when I got along in school, and I had some teachers tell me that, uh, you know, you you have writing ability. You know, you you could if you really worked at it, you could you could be a writer. That's when I began to begin to put the pieces together and say, okay, if I'm going to be a writer, why don't I write about something I know and love, which is sports, particularly football. And so as I went along, probably by the time I got to high school, uh, I really kind of had in my mind that that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Now, the thought that it could ever actually happen for me, um, you know, that you never know if that's going to happen. But by the time I was in high school, I began thinking seriously that that was the path I wanted to follow. And luckily for me, it, it all just, everything just kind of fell into place.
1: What's the process like being in the room, deciding who's going to be or voting on who's going to be in the hall of fame.
2: Very hard. Very hard. Uh, I did it for about, I guess I did it for about 15 years. I was the Philadelphia voter. The way it worked back then, it's changed a little bit now, but the way it worked back then was you had one voter from each of the cities. So there were 32 teams. So there were 32 voters. Uh, and each guy represented his team. And, um, if you had a candidate from your city from your team it was your responsibility to get up and make the presentation uh to the other voters about why your guy deserved to be in and it was a very heavy responsibility uh because there'd be 15 finalists uh, and obviously you're talking about 15 finalists for the hall of fame they're all great players you know and you as the voter from that city, you're the one that's getting up there and you got to make the case for your guy. Uh, And if he falls short, as happened with Tommy the first time that I made, uh, that I was, I was Tommy's advocate. uh, He didn't get in. Uh, And I, um, I was, I I really took it personally. You know, I felt that it was that I failed him, Uh, that it's my fault that he didn't get in. And that's Boy, that's tough. You know, I mean, that, that really was tough. It was doubly tough for me because he wasn't just an Eagles player. He was my hero. And here I was in a position where I could kind of get him over the threshold. And when he didn't get in, I felt personally responsible. So that's hard. And even if you, even if you, even if you aren't in a position that any particular year that you don't have a guy from your city, you know, so you're not, you're not, responsible for trying to to make a case to get somebody in if you're just one of the voters that year it's still hard because you got 15 finalists and on any given year you're probably going to say no to 10 of them you know and they're all great players uh and and you know what this means to those guys you know this is the this is the highest honor uh and that you could achieve and they all They and their families and everybody around them want this so desperately. And you're one of the guys in the room that's basically saying no. And that's hard. Believe me, that's hard. So people say, oh, I'd love to be a Hall of Fame voter. Well, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Because I know all the years that I did it, I took it real seriously because I knew what it meant to the people involved. But every year when I walked out of the room, I felt good for the guys we put in. But what stayed with me longer was understanding and thinking about the disappointment for the guys who didn't get in, it's its a very weighty thing you know, for these guys that have devoted their whole life to this sport and paid a real genuine physical price for the careers that they played to, at some point, stand at the door of the Hall of Fame and say, no, you're not going in. That's thats hard. And i uh, I, I felt that every year when I had to do it.
0: I have to ask you before we finish, uh, for all that you've written, the one story that didn't get to be told in writing until you wrote the book, Finish Business is your interview with Muhammad Ali, which wasn't supposed to be an interview. That right. sounds like an unbelievable situation. Can you talk about that?
2: <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, it was the only time it was the only time I ever interviewed him. Uh, and it was just, uh, it wasn't really supposed to be much of an interview. I was very new to the business. I mean, I was, I had only been at the Philadelphia Bulletin in a few years uh, and I wasn't covering boxing. We had another writer named Jack Freed, who was, but uh, Ali was training. Uh, his training camp was uh, up in the Hills in uh, a place called Deer Lake, which was up sort of near Pottsville. Uh, and, uh, when he was training, he was training for a fight. I can't remember who, who he was going to fight, but he was up there training for it. Uh, and uh, they announced that they had, you know, LA was going to be available for interviews on a certain day. Uh, and so they sent word to the Philadelphia Bulletin and our boxing writer, who was an older man, he didn't feel like making that drive. Uh, and so they sent me to, to interview LA to cover the workout. Basically, my instructions were cover the workout and get a few quotes at his press conference. But as it turned out, um, there were supposed to be a dozen reporters there. I was the only one that showed up. Uh, And so I, what was supposed to be a press conference turned into a one-on-one and I got to talk to him. I was in his cabin uh, up there, just him and me for, and he had nothing else to do. So I I was alone in the cabin with Muhammad Ali for about an hour and a half, (laughs) which was pretty awesome. Uh, and uh, we talked about you can talk about a lot of things in an hour and a half and we did um, but I, I found him to be very engaging I found him to be very bright we talked about a lot of stuff um, but I think what you're talk what you're what you're getting at <laughs> is at one point um, one of the things that surprised me about him was his knowledge of the sport the history of the sport he was talking about great fighters from the past and Joe Lewis and Henry Armstrong and Barney Ross and guys that most people wouldn't even know, guys from the 20s, 30s, 40s. Ali knew all that stuff. Um, So in the conversation of talking about great fighters, um, I brought up the name of Joe Frazier. Uh, And at that point, Ali had only fought Frazier once. They had had the one fight in New York, which Frazier had won. Uh, And so um, I mentioned Frazier and uh, Ali says to me, Um, Did you see my fight with Joe Frazier? And I said, yeah, I said, I went to the closed circuit broadcast of it at the then Spectrum. Uh, And Ali leaned across the table (laughs) until his nose was like that far from mine, And he said, who was you rooting for? Uh, And uh, I didn't, I never saw that coming. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so you can imagine alone in a cabin with Muhammad Ali right in front of you. And he has now just asked you that question. Uh, And the truth of it was I was rooting for Joe Frazier uh, because it was a Philly thing. Uh, And I could have easily lied and said, well, of course I was rooting for you. But I couldn't lie to the guy. So I looked him right in the eye and I said, I was rooting for Joe Frazier. Uh, And it was... um, and he he rocked back in his chair, and he, he didn't look angry. He just looked surprised. Uh, and he said, "Why was you rooting for Joe Frazier?" And I said, yeah, "I'm from Philadelphia. I was rooting for the home team." Uh, and and he said something that really surprised me. He said, "You know," he said, "I respect you for telling me that." And I, it, it took I the whole drive back to Philadelphia. I was thinking about what what did he mean? You know, respect what. Why did he respect it? And I think it was just that in his world, in his life, and this was true throughout his life, he was so surrounded by people who just patted him on the back and said, hey, you're the greatest, you're the best, and always told him what he wanted to hear, that to have somebody just give him an honest answer, even if it wasn't the answer he wanted to hear, it was like, okay, you know, I respect the fact that you had the guts to tell me that. So, um, yes, of all the interviews I've done, and I've done thousands, you know, that's one that I will never forget.
1: You know, Ray, the, the way that your job works is you observe something and then you write about it. What is it like now with Tommy and me to write something and now you get to observe and we get to observe something that you wrote?
2: Um, terrifying. Terrifying. Um, and, you know, Tommy and me has been running now since we, we debuted it in 2016 and here we are, 2023. So I've I've seen a lot of performances in that time, um, but every night it's 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 very fraught with anxiety for me, um, because I have no control over it. You know, when I when I was on the radio or I was doing Eagles post game TV or even writing a story, I, I I always kind of had control over over it, and if it went badly, it was sort of on me. Um, in a, in theater, it's different. I mean, now. Um, I just have to sit in the back and watch the audience file in and then the actors come on stage and then the lights come up and the play begins and I have no no control over what's going to happen now, you know, and if it, if it goes well and, you know, thank heavens, it it goes well most nights, um, that's great. And I enjoy it, but there's that fear of, okay, the play's about to start, um, (laughs) and I can't do anything to help it. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's, I've never been in this position before and it's it's a little scary, but I will say this, um, on nights when it's really good, and we've had several of those uh, in this run at, play, at the uh, Bucks County Playhouse, when the audience is really into it and they're laughing or towards the end of it, if they're crying, which happens a lot, uh, I'm sitting in the back and it's just incredibly gratifying to to see people who really embrace this story. And one of the things that's really nice, maybe one of the best things about it is when it's over, uh when people come up to me and say, um, you know, I'm not even a football fan. I don't even really like football. I don't follow the Eagles, but I loved this story. You know, when you can take when you can take people who have no real foot investment in the sport or Tommy McDonald himself, but they, you can, you can draw them into that story in a way that at the end, they're that moved. That's, you know, that's the most wonderful feeling for a playwright is that you've, you've, and sometimes theater critics and several of the critics that have written about this run at Bucks County start off their review by saying, I'm not a football fan, you know, and I walked into the Bucks County playoffs, not expecting much. One of the reviews literally said that, but then said, But by the end of the evening, I was totally caught up in the story Um, to take a theater critic and turn his whole attitude around 180 degrees in just 90 minutes. That's that's a good feeling. And we've been able to do that with Tommy and me.
0: Well, people can check it out for themselves. They can get tickets to Tommy and me. It runs through June 17th at the Bucks County Playhouse, bcptheater.org. Uh, Ray, thanks so much for the time. Congratulations on all the success. And we hope to get to talk to you again.
2: Anytime, fellas. This was a real pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Let's hit the break. When we come back, we'll talk some Phillies baseball and talk to former Philly and current Jersey Shore Blue Cross hitting coach Brock Stassi. Stick with us.
1: Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the engineers labor employer cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work.
0: Welcome back from break, Jeff. Let's uh, have some baseball talk here. Let's bring on hitting coach for the Jersey Shore Blue Claws, former Philly Brock Stassi. Brock, how you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Uh, we appreciate you giving us the time. Uh, you're it's it's funny. We'll talk baseball in a sec, but you're like a, a baseball lifer with your family. I, I looked it up. Your, your dad, your grandfather, your great grandfather played. Your brother played. Talk about the the family culture that is baseball it seems like for you guys
3: yeah it's uh you know just kind of grew up around the game my dad was a, was a high school baseball coach for about 20 years um like you mentioned his dad played and then great uncle Merle Hoag played for the Yankees back in the day as well was actually teammates with Babe Ruth um, which is some pretty cool family history um yeah just kind of grew up around the game and and took a liking to it as a as a young kid and the cool thing is like our dad never really forced it upon us. It was just just kind of what we gravitated to as uh as young kids. You know, Brock, we had the
1: opportunity
3: to to kind of see
1: you grow up through the Philly system and uh that moment when you were told that you were gonna make the major leagues. W- what was it like uh when your coach called you in and told you that you were gonna be called up to the Phillies?
3: Yeah, it was it was crazy. I mean, it was it was, yeah, I cried like a little baby the whole <laughs> that time. It was um, I tried calling, calling both my parents, but they were working so they didn't answer and um, Scott Palmer, the uh, the media relations guy for the team came out and grabbed me when I was in the hallways like, hey, they want to do some interviews. And so that was that was really like the first time I was able to get it off my chest and everything kind of kind of hit me all at once. all the all the hard work, the long bus rides, the the grinding through the minor leagues um, kind of all came came too like once once I started to actually talk about it with the media. So yeah, it was just just a whirlwind of emotions and just something that I'd wanted ever since I was a kid. All right. Well,
1: every baseball player that we ever have on here mentions the long bus rides. What is the best story you have of your minor league time and, and going through those long bus rides? And he played oh, in the man. Cape
0: Cod League, Jeff. So he's, he's got some stories,
3: I'm sure. <laughs> well, the Cape, the Cape bus rides were easy. <clears throat> excuse me. Cause we, we stay, I mean, you have host families, but you, you got to sleep in, in the same bed every single night. I did a summer in the Northwoods league. And that was, that was more like minor league baseball where it was, it was like we had a couple of 10 hour bus rides 8 hour bus rides stuff like that so those were tough but i mean last time i was in this league which was 2012 it it wasn't the same our our shortest bus ride was 4 hours and we made a trip down to augusta georgia and it's it's funny cuz it's south atlantic league and like you know that's that's very very <laughs> south it was uh we left we left lakewood we left Lakewood at midnight after a game and stopped for breakfast somewhere and the bus driver had to change because they're only allowed to drive 10 hours. So that was that was probably the craziest bus ride that I ever had. But now with the realignment the past couple of years, um, the travel is so much easier in this league and so much more manageable. But, yeah, there's – I mean, just a specific one, I wouldn't say it was the best. It was probably the worst. It was my first uh, first year in Williamsport – we were playing Brooklyn and our bus actually got in a crash on the way home and we were kind of hanging over, hanging over a guardrail. Um, Yeah. So that was, that was definitely the worst experience on the bus right there. And we we got lucky that we didn't teeter over because it was like probably a 40 foot drop down to, down to a freeway. So yeah, it was, that was wild. Not
0: that experience in particular, but how does the, the experiences having gone through this, having had those long bus rides and gone through the struggle and the journey up from the bottom up to the big leagues, help you now relate as a hitting coach for these guys there at Jersey shore.
3: I think it, I think it helps a lot because I've been through it. I've, I I kind of have a unique story that I was a senior signed and I always tell the story. I, uh, I lost 40% of my signing bonus. The first night I got it at the Mohegan sun in Connecticut And, uh, that's, and, and I've told that to a few reporters and they're like, what, Uh, what, do you have a problem? And, uh, like, no, I signed for a thousand bucks and I lost 400 bucks at a blackjack table the night I got it. (laughs) And so, um, being a late pick, um, not breaking camp my first year, um, and being an extended the whole time as a 20, I think I was 22, which is which is older for extended spring training. I was playing with a lot of first year, you know, guys coming over from Dominican from Venezuela, high school kids, um, and then working my way up to Lakewood later that year and then hitting every stop here. You know, in 2013 I was the in Clearwater, which was high A back then. I was the the third first baseman and fifth outfielder. So I was playing like once a week. Um and just I I had to earn every, every opportunity that that I got was, was earned. So just being able um, to relate to, you know, all different kinds of, of backgrounds is, is, is what I think really helps me. And, and then doing my stints of winter ball in Venezuela and Mexico, you know, understanding where, where our Latin American players come from and, you know, how they go about different things. um, I think that helps break the ice a lot quicker with those guys as well. So, um just using my past experiences from all different aspects of the game has has been beneficial.
1: What's the difference between your time coming up in the minors and what it is now?
3: Uh there's there's a lot of differences. Um back back when I was coming up, you know, we now there's there's no clubhouse dues. Um so you'd get your meal money and you'd have to pay clubhouse dues back then and it'd be like okay here's my meal money that i got there's some um there wasn't meals provided um it was you'd get one post-game meal it was a lot of pb and j until you got until you got up to double a or triple a um so the food situation the living is all covered now um guys are in furnished apartments so there's no longer stories of you know when I was in Clearwater that year, we had nine guys in a three-bedroom apartment. Um, one one guy was on an air mattress in the kitchen. Another guy was in the walk-in closet. Um, so it's it's a lot different. We, we get to travel in two buses now instead of one, so a lot more space on the bus and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of differences, but they're all for the better, honestly. They're all for, you know, organizations are investing in the player in every aspect now, not just um, – you know the on-field stuff. They they want these guys to be able to perform on a nightly basis, and they're providing the tools uh, for them to do so. So that's it's really cool to see. You didn't just get called up. We've did. heard
1: so many stories about that. I think that house with with the nine people. Who were your teammates, and how do you decide who gets the the garage? <laughs>
3: oh man, um, it was like shoot. There was a it would filter through because guys would get moved up and sent down all the time. But it was like Bob Stumpo. Carlos Alonso, um, Chris Ceratello was another one. Matt Tolbert, who played in the big leagues, and he was like on a rehab stint for like a month and a half that year in Hyatt. There was just guys from all different. Mario Hollins. He was, he was in there too. Um, It's just kind of whoever, you know, wants to pay a little more rent, maybe gets a bed. And then if you don't want to pay as much, here's go get an air mattress and, and maybe you, you get caught a little break on on some of that. Jeff,
0: that's what we heard when we were down in Clearwater years ago when we were doing our minor league show from the guys, too. It's whoever pays a little more rent gets a bed. <laughs> whoever exactly. else gets an air mattress. Exactly. You know, when you got called up, you were able to be there and make your debut on opening day. Was that a little mm-hmm. extra special to be a part of those festivities in the big leagues to like know you, you arrived, you made it?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Opening day, especially it being in Cincinnati, where it's like, I believe it's a holiday. And I don't know if it's still the case where they still open up at home every single year. Um, That was that was incredible. It was, you know, a sold out crowd, the the anthem and then the, the flyover. It was it gave me goosebumps and still gives me goosebumps to this day. And yeah, that was that was pretty special.
1: Well, you're now the hitting coach for the Jersey Shore Blue Claws. Is have you noticed a difference, or do you have to take a different approach with this group of hitters now that there have been the major league changes, especially with regard to the shift?
3: Oh, oh, like defense? Um, not too much. I think it's just like the ever-evolving aspect of hitting and stuff, and we we go about it a lot different than. Uh, than what we used to. So it used to just be a lot of, you know, T work flips, kind of easy stuff, a lot of mechanical stuff. And now it's, it's more so, how can we make it harder, like a little bit harder than the game. So we do a lot of machine work. Um, We do a lot of, you know, there's, there's these foam balls that have all, all the pitchers now are trying to pitch at the top of the zone and have, you know, they're throwing harder than ever. And so it's how how do we combat that? And the only way we can combat that is by you know stepping up our training aspect of it and um, getting after it that way. So it's been it's been that adjustment period, and um, yeah, it's been paying off so far. I've been really happy with the, the way the guys have been swinging the bat.
0: I just wanted to ask about the competition between you and your brother, Uh, your brother with the angels. Now Uh, Mm -hmm. talk to us. I mean, you guys have raised money off of that competition with homers for the hungry. Uh, You've supported high school efforts. Talk about the ability for you both to play, but also the competition that you guys have had growing up with this.
3: Yeah, it's fun. It was, uh, it was back when we're he, he, I believe it had already been, but we did a few years. uh, We did a home run derby and, um you know we had a great um great group of people that that helped us put it on and um yeah it was nice to be able to give back to our hometown of yuba city california and um just the the coolest part was being able to take the checks to the homeless shelters that we that we donated to and see how how big of a difference that made so uh, but yeah, it was it was fun to get out there and compete against him and our dad threw through the BP during the home run derby, so that was that was also cool to have him out there and, and be a part of it as well. No
1: you' know, you're, you're you're the epitome of patience, working your way through the system, getting your way to the minor league to major leagues. Uh, what What do you tell the young players that you see today? You're, I mean, you're seeing guys that are 18, 19, 20 years old who want to get to the majors as quickly as possible, probably want to take as many shortcuts as they can to get mm-hmm. there as as a coach what do you impart to them from your own experience
3: yeah i mean it's everybody obviously wants to keep moving up each level and it's easy to get caught up in what's somebody doing you know at the same position ahead of you that's that's in ready now um so i really try and preach them be, be where their feet are and treat treat Jersey Shore like like it's Citizens Bank Park and just make this your big leagues and make the most of it. Don't get caught up in what's going on above you or below you. Um and that was that was something early in my career I got caught up in. Oh man, what's this guy in first base doing at this level? What's this guy doing at that level? And it was it was honestly a, a waste of time and and when I was able to sit down with one of our old mental skills coaches um that was here when I was coming up through the system you know, that was his big thing was like, treat, treat where you are, like it's your big leagues and, and enjoy every single day and enjoy, enjoy the ups and enjoy the downs as well. So that's, that's really what I try and try and preach to them is, is be where your feet are.
1: You know, you had the opportunity to work with Dusty Walthon. We're, we're huge fans of his. Uh, what did you learn from him that you're kind of taking into your next career as a coach and, and what made him such a good manager?
3: Yeah, Dusty, Dusty was a man. He was, you know, I got to play for him in all of 14, all of 15, and then a little bit in 17 when I went, went to Lehigh. Um, the demeanor that he came with every single day, because um, in 14 and Redding, we had a stretch, I think where we lost 13 games in a row. And we had a, we had a pretty rough year in 14, but he was the same guy. He was always ready to work. Um, always, always put the player first, which was, which was awesome. Um, And then in 15, we had a really good club and ended up making it to the championship series that year. And he was, he was the same guy, even 14 and 15, no matter, no matter the circumstances, no matter where we were in the standings, he was, he was about putting the player first. And so that's, that's the mindset, the attitude that I try and bring each and every day. Like we lost last night got beat pretty good. And it's like, okay, like how can I, how can I continue to be positive and bring energy and be upbeat for, for the guys? Cause players can sense when, when you panic when you're panicking and when you when you get down and stuff like that. So it's like um uh, just trying to be the same guy every day. And I actually had a cool conversation with a with one of the position players in the dugout the other night. We had to use a position player um in the ninth inning and guys were laughing and joking around about it. And he was like, How do you feel as a coach, you know? And I'm like, this the game is too hard and the season's too long. And you know, if it if it was if we were having to do this every single night, then it'd be like, okay, like this is getting old guys. We need to, we need to make some adjustments, but it was a one-off thing. And we've been playing really well, um, lately. And so it's like, you know, let, have fun, keep it, keep it lighthearted. So yeah, that's, that's the, the attitude that I try and bring each and every day, which, which I learned a lot from Dusty.
0: Well, we wish you continued success working with the players now in your new role. And I appreciate you giving us some time. Look forward to seeing what you do. Absolutely.
3: Thank you guys fun to
0: see where Brock's journey has taken him. Uh, I'm glad you got two interviews in the show, too. This way we don't have to talk too much Phillies, Jeff.
1: <laughs> Look, it, it's it's always fun to interview, especially the guys that have come through the system, get get their experience, get their perspective, and, and see what they're doing with the team. And Brock Brock's a guy who I think is going to help develop, hopefully, young hitters that are going to come up through the system. They have some guys in the minors, you know, one we're hoping to get, we're going to get, but... We'll get them in the future, hopefully. And these are guys that you're going to see when the guys that are here start to age out. Um, but, or, but the hope is, is the guys that are here now aren't aging out as quickly as
0: they appear to be. Or when there are injuries, because, I mean, that's part of the promise. There's just no depth in the system. You see Alec Boehm go down and – who do they bring up, Jeff? <laughs> he texted me. We're like, I don't understand what's going Ooh, on. Uh, the question, you know, Drew that's Ellis, not to, I was surprised Jake Cave wasn't brought up. He's hit everything yes. down there since they sent him down.
1: Well, especially since they they talked about him the night before on, on the broadcast and say, said how well he was hitting. I mean, look, I told you before the season started, Jake Cave is on this team. We ha- We have a problem. And he hasn't been brought up yet. He should, and we have a problem. But as much as the injuries are obviously harmful, and and I will tell you every week that Reese Hoskins was such a big part of this team, regardless of the the holes he had in his game, he was was a definite positive, is that the the veterans are not pulling their weight. Kyle Schwarber cannot, as much as I like him, as much as he's a leader – you cannot hit 160 to 170. You just can't, and and I don't know how much longer they can keep them in the lineup, except for the fact that, as you
0: said, that there's not much depth in the high minors. In against the Mets this week, they went eight for fifty-one. They scored three runs and struck out thirty-three times. I, it's that's not. <laughs> It's not a recipe for anything. They, they don't look like a team that's put together to have the success that they're expected to have. And is that that we were all blinded by the way last season ended and this was a flawed team that that wasn't fixed? Or has this team just markedly underperformed at every level or a combination it's of mar- both?
1: It, it's markedly underperformed along with the injuries. I mean, if Hoskins was on this team, look at what the lineup would be um from the beginning of the season if harper hadn't been hurt look at what this lineup would be
0: he actually came back earlier
1: yeah but the big the bigger problem with this team and yes hitting has been a problem it hasn't been consistent is the pitching has been bad i mean your your two aces your one and one a have not been particularly good wheeler's been a little better recently than nola has you have walker who's Hasn't had what more than one good start this season.
0: I was more concerned by like, his mile per hour drop this week.
1: Yeah, and you you have you have that issue, and you have Ranger who hasn't been Ranger yet, and it, it's just there's just not enough here, and again, there's nothing to replace it.
0: Well, let's hope as the summer goes on, they start to play better because they're going to be a long summer if they're not, Jeff. Thanks so much. All we, all, all we
1: ever hear is when the weather we, heats up, this team's going to heat up. So we'll see.
0: Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night. up. you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.